This is KNX In-Depth. Sitting in today for Mike Simpson, I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Charles Feldman. One of the biggest COVID vaccine mandates in the country about to be put to the test. Active duty Air Force personnel supposed to be fully vaccinated by next Tuesday. We'll go in-depth to find out how it's going. Wages for most workers are going up, which is great in the short term, but what about in the long term? It may be a very different story. And tonight, the tomahawk chop done by Atlanta Braves fans for oh, some 30 years is back in the World Series, and Native Americans, well, they are not happy. So what exactly is the Facebook metaverse, and is this somewhere you'd like to visit? At the end of today's In-Depth, we'll be uh, getting into the Halloween spirit. First, we'll talk with the composer of Jordan Peele's horror movie, Get Out, who will uh, be playing the movie score live tonight with the L.A. Opera. Then goblins and ghouls are just for kids on Halloween. Turns out lots of Americans still believe in ghosts, and you may not believe what else we believe in. You know, there are days when I kind of think I have actually been in the metaverse. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, it's a I thought you were going to say you believe in ghosts, but okay. No, 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 no. no. Uh, Maybe some other things, but not ghosts. Uh, We start, though, with uh, an Air Force vaccine mandate, and it is coming up fast. John Pellicero is a senior scholar in government at the Marcula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. He's also a retired Army captain. Thanks for being with us. So uh, the majority, as I understand the figures uh, of those in the armed forces, have been vaccinated, but there's still a significant minority who have not. Do we know why? Well, uh, a lot of it has to do, I think, with the information sources that service members are using, uh, perhaps relying upon less uh, uh, valid and um, uh, uh, truthful sources about the effects of the vaccines. And um, they're using that as an excuse not to want to get the vaccine. Do we know yet whether the Air Force or the other branches of the armed services, when their vaccine mandates come due, will immediately discharge airmen who remain unvaccinated? Uh, It's not clear that they're going to seek to discharge service members who don't comply, but they can be held accountable uh, under the military justice system for failing to obey a a lawful order from the chain of command. Um, And, you know, there's a there's an ethical question of fairness that and justice that will be in play here. You know, you, the military can't allow service members to pick and choose which orders, which mandates in this case, they're willing to comply with and ignore others while holding other uh, service members responsible for such um, uh, ignoring of lawful orders. In the time that you served, did you see any kind of an analogous situation? And if so, what might that have been? Uh, No, I'd have to say that I didn't. In fact, I spent a good part of my uh, career working in the Army in the area where we received new recruits coming into the service. And um, there was very little objection to conforming to requirements for vaccinations. Uh, The occasional religious uh, request for an exemption would come up. But um, the uh, service members generally understood that this was a matter of uh, serving the the public interest, the common good, to be uh, vaccinated and to be ready to deploy and to carry out their duties in, in 
uh, support of our national defense. Well, that raises a sort of interesting question, I think. Uh, while not certainly uh, uniformly so, many people who are anti-vaccination uh, sort of align themselves politically, uh, mostly politically to the right, to be quite frank about it. Uh, can we presume that some of those in the armed forces who are refusing to get vaccinated are expressing what they consider to be their political views? And if so, is that a dangerous place to go? Because we think of the military as supposedly being non-political. Well, one doesn't have to give up their political viewpoints uh, to serve in the military, but they do have to comport to the requirements of uh, being a member of, of a, um, armed services. And in doing so, uh, they may not agree with everything. Uh, it may run contrary to their own political views, but uh, they may have to put those aside in order to accept an appointment to serve in the military. Talk to us a little bit about the overall success of the vaccination effort in the U.S. military. Oftentimes, the headlines focus on the small pockets of resistance we see. But is it fair to say that overall, most military members are getting their shots? Uh, yes, there's been significant improvement in the last three or four months uh, in military compliance with this. Uh, the concerns that were there uh, were uh, largely associated with enlisted members, who were not uh, obtaining uh, correct information about the potential impacts of the vaccines and were expressing resistance uh, to it, particularly when we were during, doing the sort of voluntary requests that they comply. Now we have direct orders coming down from the commander in chief and um, the compliance rate, even in the Air Force, is, is close to 95% right now. All right, John, thank you again. That is retired Army Captain John Pellicero joining us on KNX In-Depth. If you're in a lot of jobs, especially in the service industry right now, it's a pretty good time for you. You can probably get a lot more money to do what you're doing. Now, here's the bad news. In the not-too-distant future, you may be replaced by a robot. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Chris Seaton sitting in today from Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Coming up in the second hour of In-Depth today, the composer of the soundtrack for Jordan Peele's classic horror movie, Get Out, is with us before he plays the movie score live tonight with the L.A. Opera. And before that, 30 years after it first showed up, yeah, the tomahawk chop of the Atlanta Braves fans continues, continues to offend Native American groups. Well, for the third quarter of this year, wages have jumped faster than at any time in over 20 years. And for a lot of people, especially in service industries, this is a really good time because lots of jobs are open and you can practically name your price. Maybe not name your price, but close to it. Gregory Docco is chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. Uh, Gregory, thanks for being with us. So good Thank times, you. right, economically anyway, for somebody who is out of work and wants to get a job. But there's a downside to this, is there not down the road? Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing right now is a steady acceleration in wages, uh, which is very encouraging uh, in particular because a lot of the wage growth is concentrated at the lower end of the wage spectrum. So jobs in the services sector, uh, which were hit pretty badly uh, by the COVID recession, are seeing stronger wage growth, which is a, a strong sign for lower income families. 
Um, one of the, the key questions, though, is the stickiness of inflation going forward, because what matters really is how fast wages are growing relative to inflation. Um, and that could become a concern as we move into 2022. Well, let's talk a little bit about those those rising wages. Are they in response to inflationary price increases or out of good, the goodness of companies' hearts or, or mostly because <laughs> people, because we have a deep labor shortages right now persisting in this country across so many different industries? I think it's really the latter. We have a mismatch between labor supply and labor demand. Uh, There's strong labor demand. Employers are looking to hire. The job openings are very high. Uh, There are a lot of positions that are open out there. Uh, But workers are waiting for better work conditions, better benefits, higher salaries. Um, And so you're seeing this mismatch in terms of urgency um, that is being reflected in higher wage growth. Um, that is overall a good thing. We think that what's happening right now is a re-leveling of wages at the lower end of the income spectrum. Um, but we have to be considerate of the fact that in some cases, companies may be looking to offset these higher input costs by increasing productivity and therefore using fewer workers, less labor force, um, which in the end may actually be a negative uh, for employment. So we have to see the ba- how the balance plays out over the coming months. Uh, For now, we are in an environment where labor demand remains quite strong and wages are rising, which is an encouraging thing for households across the U.S. Yeah, I mean, for years, we've always heard, you know, stories about uh, be careful someday a robot might be replacing you. But uh, especially in certain industries where presumably you can mechanize and, and get away from humans doing the job, is that a real fear? I think it's something that we have to contend with. I mean, the reality is that the COVID crisis probably accelerated some of the trends that existed before the COVID crisis. Um, We've seen increases in digitalization. We've seen um, more uh, remote uh, work, uh, which in itself can actually be a a positive thing. Um, But uh, these uh, developments, in some cases, may be uh, labor-replacing. So while it is encouraging to see that workers have temporarily gained some increased bargaining power and have uh, been able to realize these higher wages, we are in an environment in which inflation is, to some extent, eroding those gains, eroding um, households' purchasing power. Um, And we have to be conscious of the fact that businesses, in the end, are not just going to raise salaries uh, just out of uh, a goodwill. Uh, They will um, essentially look at how their profit margins are faring, um, how much stress there is in terms of higher labor cost and react to that by adjusting their employment uh, patterns. Well, we, we talk about trends, we talk about the pandemic, we talk about the labor shortages, robots possibly replacing workers, and in many cases already doing so. Um, are you optimistic or pessimistic as you look at the future of the workforce? I think I'm generally optimistic. I think we are going to see an environment in which uh, employment growth reaccelerates. We had a bit of a lull in the third quarter, but we are seeing um, high-frequency data pointing to stronger employment trends. We are seeing also an improvement um, in the health situation, driving stronger mobility and greater demand. Um, So as some of these supply issues, whether on the labor front or on the capital front in terms of supply chains, as they ease over the next few months, we should continue to see a fairly positive environment for the economy and for the labor force in the U.S. Do you see a a period, though, in the not-too-distant future when not only will the wage increases plateau, but possibly actually be sort of clawed back? There's a possibility of that, certainly. Um, If you think about uh, an employer that has given a raise 
um, even if it's at the lower end of the, the wage spectrum of, let's say, 3 to $4 on top of uh, a $15 uh, an hour uh, pay, then it's unlikely that these wage increases will be repeated year after year after year uh, because that eats into companies' margins um, and for uh, small businesses that can become a real constraint in terms of revenues and in terms of future investment. So um, I think that as we look into 2022 and potentially even 2023, we should not be expecting this uh, type of environment of strong wage gains to be repeated year after year after year. Uh, we think that, again, this is more of a re-leveling of wages at the lower end of the income spectrum, which all else equal is a very good thing for these families at the lower to median end of the income spectrum um, and should allow them to spend more freely, especially in the absence of additional fiscal aid. All right, Gregory, thank you for joining us today on KX In-Depth. That's Gregory Daco. He is the chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. Okay, show of hands. How many House <laughs> Republicans are willing to stand up against <laughs> former <laughs> President Trump? Uh, One, no, it's hard. Wow, it's Wow. When we come back, we'll explain that (laughs) one. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. This is Chris Seedens. Well, you know, uh, guess what holiday is coming up? Hmm. Yeah, that one's (laughs) Halloween. And, you know, it's not just kids that are scared around uh, Halloween time. Turns out a lot of people believe in ghosts and ghouls and goblins. So uh, a little bit later in the show, we will get into the Halloween spirit. Right now, though, Illinois Congressman Adam Kinzinger saying today uh, that he will be the latest Republican who... uh, Who's been critical of the former president, Donald Trump? Uh, He's going to walk away from Capitol Hill. Uh, Kinzinger won't run for re-election. And uh, he had a lot of unkind things to say about the state of Congress in uh, a tweet that he posted today saying that he's going to end his time uh, in in Congress. Barbara Comstock is an attorney, former Republican congresswoman from Virginia's 10th district. Uh, Ms. Comstock, thank you for joining us today on In Depth. Tell me, is this going to be a continuing trend? We're seeing it already. Kinzinger, the latest Republicans who have been perhaps critical of the former president, moving on rather than risk his wrath and perhaps being primaried? Well, first of all, let me just say I'm so proud of the service that my friend Adam Kinzinger has given to this country, you know, in the military and in Congress. And he's really been a person of consequence and significance in Congress. So unlike so many of the others um, who, you know, are the Trump sycophants, um, Adam is just, you know, his own man and just talented and you know leaving congress is not going to end what is going to be for him a continued career i am confident of consequence and and uh you know contributions to um the country and to whatever community he's in he's just gotten married has baby so you know this is somebody who has lots of uh options and very talented so yes for people like that it is frustrating to be in congress i can tell you while i um I, I can't say that uh, I regret not being in there the past few years. I'm happy not to be. And you can still make a lot of contributions um, outside of Congress. And so, uh, yes, I know people feel like it, And I should point out that his district, he was redistricted essentially out of his seat and put in with another Republican. So, you know, to do all this, to be to have, you know, and then end up serving with someone like a Marjorie Greene, do you really want that when you have talent to do other things? So I think that's sort of the dynamic. But you're going to have new people coming in. And right here in Virginia, I am 
I, I'm feeling pretty good about Glenn Youngkin, um, a great, fresh-faced, talented businessman who looks like he's going to win this governor's election against uh, Terry McAuliffe. And he has not gone down to Mar-a-Lago. He said he would certify the election. He's run on issues, and he's about the future. And I think getting new, fresh faces in is good, too. So none of us need to be there for our entire lives. But, Barbara— and I, I think if right. Glenn wins, it will show that, you know, yeah. you don't have to bow and scrape to Trump. But, but do you think if he wins, what you just were talking about before, do you think that uh, that would be a— a sign that we may see more of that in the Republican Party, or is that just going to be an anomaly that isn't going to change much? Well, I certainly hope that it'll be, since it'll be so unusual in a state that has trended blue and that Trump wiped us out here in Virginia for the past four years, to have someone come in on their, you know, be their own man, you know, like Adam, and, and um, you know, he hasn't had surrogates come in. He's been out on the stage drawing these huge uh, uh, crowds on his own, talking about the economy and jobs and getting kids back in school, raising teacher salaries, helping historically black colleges. He's really done some interesting things because he's a talented businessman and he's been very active in the philanthropic community. So good candidates matter. And I'm still active in recruiting good candidates. And I think it's always good to get, you know, new, fresh faces in. And I think talent like that and people like that who've already accomplished a lot realize, hey, I'm going to do this on my own terms or I'm not going to do it. And that's how I think that's how Adam is. That's how Liz Cheney is. And I think when I I certainly, you know, hope that I, I feel like I was that way, too. You want to do this job and serve your community, but do it with, you know, on your own terms and not be bowing and scraping to a guy who's promoting the big lies. And I, I think some of those, a lot of those people who are doing that with Trump will um, lose people like Herschel Walker, people like some of the crazy folks out in Arizona. <laughs> right, um, right. I, I think that model won't work in certainly in the long term, but even in the short term. And I'm confident um, even if Trump gets the nomination for 2024, he will never be president again. Um, the well, that's quite a, quite, a, quite a prediction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll see what happens with that one. Barbara, thank you. Again, that's Barbara Comstock, uh, former Republican congresswoman from Virginia. Uh, as I uh, mentioned before, so a little bit later on in the show, we're going to get into the Halloween uh, spirit here. Uh, and I'm curious, I mean, you know, how many of you folks out there believe in ghosts, think you've seen a ghost? You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Chris Seaton sitting in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you can probably recognize that if you're a baseball fan. If you've watched baseball at pretty much any point over the last 30 years, that chant is probably familiar to you. It's the Tomahawk Chop, the chant done by Atlanta Braves fans at all their home games. And, of course, there's a a big arm-chopping motion that goes along with that chant. The Tomahawk Chop is back in the World Series for the first time in a long time. The Braves are back in it, of course, playing Game 3 tonight against the Houston Astros. The series all tied up at one win apiece, and much of the uh, frustration 
going into tonight's game from countless Native American groups will be because, will be because of the tomahawk chop. The uh, chop continues to thrive with the blessings of both the Braves organization and Major League Baseball, even as teams from Cleveland and Washington, D.C. have ditched their Native American nicknames. Crystal Echo Hawk is founder and CEO of the activist group Alumna Native and a member of the Pawnee Nation. Crystal, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon, gentlemen. So uh, you're not happy, I presume. Uh, So tell us a little bit about why you think the Hawks continue to, despite the clear trend around the country to to not do things like this, why they continue to do it. I mean, there's just a pure absence of reason right behind the the decision by the Braves leadership, but the, the commissioner of Major League Baseball. Right. I mean, as you mentioned in your your lead up, you know, we had, you know, huge victories where seeing the Washington football team finally seeing the light, obviously, with a lot of economic pressure and a social groundswell, the Cleveland Indians and thousands of K through 12 schools across the country and in different states, including the state of Colorado and others that have outright banned Native American mascots. So to see that they're still holding on to uh, a name um, imagery and a, and a this tomahawk chop that perpetuates racism and discrimination against Native Americans is just, it, 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 it enrages us as Native peoples, um, you know, because there's, there's just really no reason. Um, it also just enrages us because there is more than two decades worth of scientific research that has gone and shown that Native American mascots and the associated racist fan behavior like the tomahawk chop and the imagery and all the things, the red face oftentimes that fans will don, that causes psychological harm to Native American children. And so it's just really the the science is there, the numbers are there, the polling shows that only not Native Americans, the majority of Native Americans aren't supportive of these type of mascots, but also increasingly the majority of Americans, particularly Americans under the age of 30, do not support Native mascots. Crystal, let me ask you this. Are you surprised that with all the scrutiny that it's come under in recent years, and we've seen the name changes in in Cleveland with the the baseball team there, with the, the Washington football team, does it surprise you that with all this scrutiny, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manford, says that he's okay with the tomahawk chop because a major tribe in Virginia gave it its blessing? Is that enough? What do you make of that? It's astounding. I mean, one, when you look at that, basically Major League Baseball took a, a, you know, what it considers a serious stand against racism back in 2020, right? They've gone political with the All-Star game being removed out of Georgia before, right? But somehow racism against Native Americans is tolerated. And just because he's cherry picked one tribe, right, who they're in an economic partnership, who've signed off on this, that is, it's not right. One tribe cannot just sign off on all of us and say that this kind of harm is okay to all Native Americans. If this was a a symbol um, that was specific to the Eastern Band Cherokee, right, it was specifically part of the culture and then the tribe said that was okay, that would be a different story, right? This is a caricature. This is something dreamt up by Hollywood and non-Natives, right, that is that is not specific to the Eastern Band Cherokee. Therefore, the commissioner using it as an excuse saying, well, I got a small group of you know, natives in this tribe over here to sign off. The harm is, is exponential. It, it affects Native Americans all over this country and he needs to go out and get a, a broader consensus. And when you look at in, institutions like the National Congress of American Indians who oppose the Braves name and the tomahawk chop and have made public statements. And when you look at the majority of polling, 
more than 65% of Native Americans oppose this, he is cherry picking and using what information rationalizes his position and it cannot stand. So Crystal, what are you gonna do? <laughs> we we are organizing, right? We're not gonna tolerate this and we're not going away. And I can tell you, this has been a, a battle fought for more than three decades by Native Americans across this country, within Georgia and different places where Native mascots cause harm. So we're not giving up. And it's clear, you know, that it's probably going to take some economic pressure. We're going to have to figure out even more. So what are the pressure points for the league and for the team? But we're not giving up and Native Americans across this country are not giving up. So it's, okay. they can make it easy on themselves. There's a great leadership opportunity for them to do the right thing, but we will not cease until we see the change and that we see that our children are protected. Crystal, very quickly before we let you go, the Chicago Blackhawks, the NHL team, keeping their name saying it honors a Native hero. Is that fair? No, it's not. And they've heard, again, it's it's sort of picking and choosing, you know, what they want to listen to, and they need to start listening to Native Americans. And okay. Native Americans majority are saying that it's got to go. Crystal Echo Hawk, member of the Pawnee Nation. Crystal, thank you for joining us today on KNX In-Depth. Coming up, we'll take a trip to the metaverse. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Chris Seedens. So Facebook is going to have a new name, uh, Meta. It's short for Metaverse. Yeah, soon the company will uh, start uh, reporting its uh, Reality Labs earnings separately from its uh, family of apps. Ryan Mack is a technology reporter with the New York Times who's extensively reported on Facebook. He joins us now on In-Depth. Ryan, thank you. First of all, what is this? What is this new Metaverse? So the uh, the Meta, which the oh, first of all, the company is now known as Meta, which is kind of a weird thing about it. company known as Facebook is now Meta. Um, but the Metaverse kind of idea of a shared kind of virtual reality world that Meta, formerly known as Facebook, is trying and build towards the future. That's what the company is saying is its future, and so that's essentially the the work towards here. The uh, I think we're going to try to get a better connection with you because it's really hard, uh, uh, Ryan. We're going to try to stick with us, and we're going to see if we uh, can get you reconnected. And while we uh, do that, uh, Chris, so uh, essentially, you know, the name that Facebook has, uh, Meta, is, as as we pointed out, it's short for Metaverse. Right, right. And this isn't actually a name that, that they came up with. This was something that was coined quite some time ago, and it, it is sort of this intersection of, as I understand it, it's this sort of intersection of social media and uh, uh, artificial intelligence and augmented reality, and I think, uh, Ryan, you're back with us, yes? I'm here, yeah. Sorry okay. About that. No, no, no. I, I mean, we were I, you were lost in the metaverse, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, so I, I was in the in the process of explaining, and correct me if I'm wrong, to to listeners, that what the metaverse actually is is it's this sort of blend, right, of uh, social media and augmented reality and artificial intelligence, and somehow pulling all of that together, right, to do what? Kind of as a virtual reality world, a shared virtual reality where you can tune in. And I mean, think of something like uh, Second Life or um, 
or like Sims, for example, or something like Claire. Yeah, we apologize, Ryan. We we apologize, but but we still are having technical issues that are making it impossible for our audience to hear what you have to say. And I'm sure it's really interesting, but they'll have to probably go to the metaverse to find out. And and a lot of this came about, of course, with Facebook facing so much criticism uh, in the media these days. Uh, Add to that a lot of political pressure as well for the company. Uh, And we should also point out that well, this meta title uh, is is Facebook's, I guess, blanket uh, name for the for the company, much the same as Google is it's actually, Alphabet. Is Alphabet. Yeah. Uh, I guess some of the other apps that they own, uh, the likes of Instagram and things yeah. like that, are staying with their, their well, regular names. And, and there's been some uh, criticism out there already uh, yeah. that perhaps you know some of the motivation for for uh, Mark Zuckerberg to do what he's doing with Facebook is by changing the name. It kind of takes the headlines away from the bad headlines that Facebook has been getting for quite some time now. Uh, are we going to try one more time we, with Ryan? We'll get a third, third try. Ryan, if, if, if this one works, we'll, we'll send you a giant prize. <laughs> How about this? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's okay. Um, so I, what I was just saying is uh, that I, there is this critique out there, yes, that, that uh, one of the reasons why Facebook is changing its name is there's some suspicion that perhaps by doing that it takes the headlines away from the negative ones that they've been subjected to for quite some time now and it shifts it into a different area is that part of the motivation i mean certainly there's a brand tax with the name facebook i mean you think of facebook and you think of the controversies that have come with the company most recent most recently with these papers that have been leaked by this whistleblower that show a number of controversies with things like misinformation and hate speech um, but on some level, it's also a major shift for the company. I mean, they're moving away from this idea of traditional social networking online through something like Facebook and Instagram toward this kind of shared virtual reality with, with the metaverse. And while this remains kind of a long ways away, they're kind of signaling towards their investors and towards their users that the focus of the company is now going to be building t- this kind of new universe. Well, in covering it as much as you have for the New York Times, was was this a move you felt uh, they were going to have to make? I don't know if have to make is is the right way of looking at it, but I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is, is someone that's always been, um, I mean, interested in his legacy, and he's interested in kind of seeing what is next and what is around the corner. And for a long time, that has been executed with acquisitions. He's bought things like Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus to try and kind of stave off um, a kind of, uh, I guess, obsolescence of Facebook. And now with the metaverse, I mean, he's now signaling that this is kind of the new shift of, of the company or, or, or where the company wants to go. And um He's trying to preserve that future for for his company own that all right that Ryan, system ryan thank you for your time again that's ryan mack technology reporter for the new york times much more of knx uh, our next half hour coming up This is KNX In-Depth, in today for Mike Simpson, I'm Chris Seaton. 
And I'm Charles Feldman. Who Are you, you getting scared yet? Halloween's coming yeah, up. Right? That's enough you to know. do it for me. Yeah. Uh, who can forget the first time watching the groundbreaking horror film Get Out? Well, this Halloween, experience it with a live orchestra conducted by Emmy-nominated composer Michael Abels, uh, who wrote the film's original score. Hosted by the L.A. Opera, Get Out with Live Orchestra opens tonight at 8 at the Ace Hotel. Now, if you're busy tonight, you can catch a performance tomorrow or Sunday night. We have composer, arranger, and producer Michael Abel is here with us. So, Michael, start out, if you can, just describe what tonight's event is is all about. What it is, is it's a combination of uh, A Night at the Movies, screening Jordan Peele's Oscar-winning film Get Out, but it's also a concert. What we do is we take the the musical soundtrack out of the film, um, and then while we project the film, we play the music live to picture as it happens. So you get both um, a movie and a concert all together. So I've been to, in my lifetime, a few of these sessions where they score, you know, motion pictures or TV shows, and it's a pretty complicated art form. So how do you pull this off live? Oh, well, you, what makes it, you're right, it is, it can be complicated. What makes it complicated is that music, while it's an art into itself, um, as part of a film, it serves the storytelling arc of the story. And music is timed to picture um, down to the, to a fraction of a second. And so how it's created live is that we are synced via a, a click that we hear in our earpiece that shows us where the beat of the music is to be. And so we strive to play exactly with that. When we do, um, the music happens exactly as it was with the picture, but it has that element of being created live. So you have that real uh, sense of live music that you that you can only get from watching live musicians create music right in front of you. Is this something you have to do a lot of rehearsal for, or do you just kind of wing it and hope for the best? <laughs> uh, we do not wing it. <laughs> we rehearse very thoroughly to be able to make it seem like it's effortless. Um, but uh, the part that you asked me about is the part is the behind the scenes part that we um, don't. Uh, we try to make it seem like it's seamless and and easy. Uh, but the the. Uh, not everyone is on the click. Some of us are wear an, an earpiece and we hear the click and then, um, but my, part of my job is to conduct and the, these probably the single most important job of conducting is to help everyone understand how to stay together and to feel the tempo of the music. And then um, beyond that, the importance of con- conducting a, in your body language, you try to embody the spirit of the music and what what isn't on the page is really the character of the music and the emotion. And so a conductor and the way they hold themselves and the way they give cues to the orchestra and to the singers, they help convey the the mood of the music and help bring everyone into that same emotional space that creates that sound. Now, this is a movie, of course, that, that actually is, I guess, perfect for Halloween. But as a composer, what makes music, I, I guess for lack of a better word, scary? What makes scary music? That's a great question. You know, it, there's there's a long answer to that, or there could be long answers and different opinions, of course, but I think it comes down to um, the unfamiliar is one thing. A sound that is unfamiliar makes all of our senses alert. If you think about being in your home at night and you hear you know, a methodical sound like the heater switching on or something, that's not scary because you know what it is and it's makes that rhythm that lets you know it's not alive. But if there's a thump 
that you're not used to, and then it happens again. I don't not, want to hear a thump. I do exactly, not want to hear exactly. a thump. You're already like, no. Yeah, no, no thump. <laughs> right. No, I'm not. I, I don't want that. You see how quickly that that puts us on edge. Well, imagine that, but in music, that's in and music already affects us so emotionally in a way that's really just pure magic. Um, but when music is done in that way that is intentionally unexpected, well, the result is really like nothing else. And so that's one aspect of scary music. But then also there's the the timbre of music, just the 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 shapes, you know, some sounds are very harmonious and soothing. And the opposite has the scary effect. And so when you um, watch a movie like Get Out, you're subject to a lot of music like that. And when watching a concert of that music, you become aware of really how much how much that music is planned very thoughtfully and all of the people who are really brilliant in their own right, who all come together to make it what it is. Were you always uh, sort of attracted to that genre of music or is it something you just kind of fell into and, and discovered that you were good at it and people liked what you were doing? Well, I was, I was the type of little kid who was just terrified. Of, I mean, I wouldn't be not only scared of movies that were scary, I'd be scared there'd be just something in a normal, you know, film that would, I would find scary and I would have nightmares. So one time I decided I needed to toughen myself up. I went to a triple feature of horror movies when I was in college and you could still go. And there was a theater on, on Hollywood Boulevard, you know, where it was like cheap. And, um, and I made myself watch six hours of horror movies and I had nightmares all night, but it actually did. It, it, it desensitized me enough that I could, I could, right in that genre but also what you do is you there there's really a beauty in in ugly sounds <laughs> believe it or not you and and when you embrace and listen for the beauty in ugly sounds you can really find it and when you do then you're able to have it's like mixing dark colors you know there's if you see dark colors as not just uniform but actually shades of different emotion well you can you can make a whole painting that was nothing but dark colors. And I think that's what, uh, in a lot of ways, scoring um, a suspenseful film is about. I could not watch that many horror movies <laughs> back to back to back. That's <laughs> Emmy-nominated composer Michael Abels. When uh, in-depth, what what is that behind you? Oh, no, no. 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 Is that, I'm not falling for <clears throat> it. No, no, no. no, no right. I'm, I'm serious. I'm totally serious. <laughs> it's right behind you. And I, it, it, well, it disappeared. <laughs> no, it's back. Let me come back. Okay. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Getting scared just hearing that music, that sound effect from that classic show. Halloween is about embracing the scary, the mysterious, the spooky, and unknown in this world. Well, it's primarily a, a holiday for children. Turns out many of us, many of us are believers in the supernatural and the afterlife. New survey from YouGov reveals that two in five Americans believe that ghosts do exist. One in five of us say that they've actually seen a ghost. You know, there really is something behind you. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. no, I'm, I'm telling you, look, turn around. Karen Adams you is probably know? standing right by me right now. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Hi, Karen. Some 43% of adults, 43% say they think demons are real and about eight to Nine percent think werewolves and vampires are real too. Mark Hartsman is author of Chasing Ghosts, a tour of our fascination with spirits and the supernatural. Mark, thanks for being with us. Uh, I don't know if I'm more surprised how many Americans think 
or believe or say that they've seen ghosts as I am that eight or nine percent believe in werewolves and vampires. I don't I don't quite get that. Yeah, that that's an interesting stat. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, by the way. It's good to be here. Um, you know, belief in ghosts goes all the way back to, you know, uh, ancient civilization. So the idea that half of us, almost half of us still believe in ghosts, I'm not terribly surprised by, but vampires and werewolves, I'm a, I'm a bit more skeptical about. Why? Why do we have such a fixation on ghosts, vampires, werewolves, the like? <laughs> I think there's a little bit of the unknown, um, certainly, but I think with ghosts, you know, in particular, it just goes back to this, you know, the age old question of, is there life after death? You know, what happens? Do we, does our consciousness survive in any way? And so I think that question and the hope that the answer is that something exists uh, is part of why we have this belief in ghosts, or, or at least maybe a, a, a desire to believe in ghosts, because at the root of it, I think it's about hope that there's something more beyond this physical life that we have right now. Ghosts and vampires are a, a little bit different. Um, I'm sorry, vampires and werewolves are a little bit different, though. That's a that's an offshoot, I think, of uh, you know different kinds of monsters and creatures, which is a little little different to me than ghosts. But uh, I guess not entirely different, but a little different. Well, you never met my family, but, but <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know what I'm curious about about when it comes to to ghosts, uh, Mark. Uh, why is it that for the most part, uh, with some notable exceptions, like you know, I guess Casper, the friendly ghost, most ghosts are are portrayed as or presented as being evil or dangerous or threatening in nature. Why is that? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something I find kind of odd. And I think that I think a lot of that's just how it's portrayed in pop. Whoops, did we did Mark scary movies, ghost stories have oh, something kind of spooky oh. and scary about oh, can you hear me? Yeah, you disappeared for a second, but it's probably oh, Halloween. Mu must have been a ghost. Yeah. It uh, could but, have been. But yeah. The, but the the question again was why why are ghosts seemingly always portrayed or mostly portrayed anyway, as being evil forces with very few exceptions. Yeah, I think part of that just has to do with how they're portrayed in popular culture. You know, movies always have them as in the horror genre, um, as something scary and unknown and, and kind of spooky. Um, maybe that goes into like the the idea of evil spirits and coming through Ouija boards and these kinds of things. But really, you know, back when spiritualism was in its heyday around the turn of the century, people were trying to talk to the dead just to hear their, you know, hear from their loved lost loved ones and friends once again. And it was very normal and casual and just usually loving messages from the other side about how wonderful it is over there and not to worry about them. So, you know, ghosts used to just be normal contacts with people that you were, you were missing. Um, and the way I look at it is I, I would think seeing a ghost should be a wonderful thing, not a scary thing at all, because going back to my first response, it, it's the idea that there's something else. And that seems like really good news versus something scary. But yeah, I think it's mostly just how it's portrayed in pop culture. It kind of gives it that, that feeling. Mark, uh, as, as Charles mentioned, you're the author of Chasing Ghosts, a tour of our fascination with spirits and the supernatural. Why did you choose this topic? Have you always had a, a wide interest in ghosts? Yeah, I, I've i always kind of been interested in it. And I say at the beginning of my book, I can't say that I've seen a ghost personally or that I feel confident I've seen a ghost. But I just love this idea that there might be something else beyond life. And I find I find it fascinating the different ways people believed um, how it spanned different cultures. And, and going back to the spiritualism movement I, I talked about a moment ago, I love the fact that you had around the late 1800s, early 1900s, these people who were 
millions of people, believers who were so confident that you could speak to uh, spirits, uh, you know, that, that had passed beyond the veil and the ways that mediums were able to manifest different, uh, you know, uh, manifestations of spirits, whether it was knockings, levitating tables, ectoplasm, spectral faces in rooms, moving furniture. And they had all these ways of producing these effects that people really bought into. So I just found it really fascinating, that whole era. Um, and it just continues. I mean, belief in ghosts has never really gone away, even as we get more uh, technology, as people learn more about science. In fact, science, I talked about in the book how science has shown what might be paranormal events could be explained by science, but at the same time, how uh, not everything is explained by science that still leaves a lot of mysteries open. Well, Mark, thank you very much for your perspective. I, I, I wish you could help us, though. There is something behind Charles right now, which is really spooking me, and uh, we'll, we'll have to worry about that another it's time. It's probably harmless. Probably <laughs> harmless. Well, I don't know. It's pretty big. Kind of ugly. <laughs> not, it's, not it's from this <laughs> company, no. <laughs> Mark, thank you again. That's Mark Hartsman. He is the author of Chasing Ghosts, a tour of our fascination with spirits and the supernatural. That'll do it for this edition of KNX in Okay, don't believe me, Chris. Don't, don't, I mean, it's don't turn you now. Don't, no, I don't turn it. around, but okay. Have a wonderful uh, Halloween, a safe Halloween on Sunday. We're back again on Monday for Charles. I'm Chris. Mike's back on Monday. You've been listening to KNX in depth.